Let's open our Bibles to Matthew. Our study this morning, which I have entitled Biblical Forgiveness and Universalism. When Peter came to him, he said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And Jesus said unto him, I do not say unto you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven, which is, of course, 490. As we make our way through the Gospels, we will see again this morning the necessity of all the Gospels put together. Without Luke's Gospel, a further explanation of Jesus' teaching of forgiveness here in Matthew, we might not have a biblical understanding of forgiveness. This morning, I'd like to look at three aspects about biblical forgiveness. Number one, should I forgive a person who has sinned against me, even if he or she isn't repentive? Number one. Number two, how should this be done? And number three, how does a universalist understand God's forgiveness? So these will be our three points that we'll be looking at this morning. And our text here this morning that I just read was really Peter's question. Actually, Peter thought um, he was being magnanimous when he said this because um, two or three times were all you had to forgive according to the rabbis. Peter was willing to forgive seven times. And so what Peter basically did is said, okay, if if the rabbis say two or three times, I'm going to double that and add one, and uh, the Lord should be impressed with it. The first question this morning, should I forgive a person even if he isn't repentive? Matthew 18 and Luke 17, again, one of the things as we go through the Bible and we look at why the Lord gave us four different Gospels, and they harmonize, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which we call the synoptic Gospels. And if we didn't have the input from Luke chapter 17, we would not have a a complete understanding of the story that Jesus is going to tell here about the two men who uh, who were in debt. So I'm going to have you turn to Luke chapter 17. There are similarities here. In Matthew 18, we have the story about woe to that person who would cause one of my little ones to stumble and destroy his faith. It would be better for that man if a millstone was hanged around his neck and he'd be drowned in the deepest sea rather than stand before me on judgment day. And we find in 17, we don't have that much information in verses 1 and 2, but to show you that they tie together, we have the same thought unfolding. So verse 1, then he said to his disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. And then in verse 3, he says, Take heed to yourself. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now, as we look at this, Luke adds that big little word, if. In other words, that makes it conditional. He's saying here, if he repents, you must forgive him. 
you're under obligation. This will set up um, um, the question, uh, does God forgive a person if that person doesn't repent? Look back to, just go back to Luke 13. And here we have basically another way of saying it, all have sinned and called fallen short of the glory of God. I would add to it, how many sins does it take to make you a sinner? And the answer is one sin. So with that in mind, uh, verse 1 of chapter 13, there were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans who Pilate's blood was mingled with their sacrifice. And Jesus answered and said to them, do you suppose those Galileans were worse sinners than other um, Galileans because they suffered these things? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Or how about those 18 of whom the Tower of Siloam fell to them and killed them? Do you think they were worse sinners than others who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The question arises, um, is it necessary to repent uh, for God to forgive you and according to the Lord himself? Absolutely. Without repentance, there's no salvation. And uh, this um, flies in the face of a lot of doctrine today, and eventually I'm going to be working it towards uh, universalism. But let's make our way back to Matthew chapter 18 because the Lord tells a story about two men. Both of them were in debt. Picking it up in verse 23, we read, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now everybody's got a different um, number on this. I read anywhere from $12 million to $52,400,000, depending upon when it was written and whether it was uh, silver here or gold, who owed him $10,000, an amazing amount of money. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold, and his wife and children and all that he had, that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before his master, saying, Have patience with me, and I'll pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, and he released him and forgave him a debt that there's no way he could repay, especially if it's the 52 million, the higher number. He simply couldn't do it. And he begs him, and he says, please, you know, I don't know how I'm going to pull this off, but if you just give me enough time, I'm going to do my best to pay back every last penny. And something happened to the king's heart, and as a result, he says, you know, I'm just going to cut this one loose. I'm going to write it off, and you don't have to think about it anymore. And I imagine that guy's kept out of that place with that big of a debt over his head. And so he's on his way home, and... Um, what we see here is the, the master's compassion. 
So he's on his way home, 28 now to 36. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now here, there's, it's off the charts from, I found one commentator that said $44. He owed him $44. Another one said it's more like um, several days' wages. But nowhere in comparison to what he'd just been forgiven. So he finds the guy who owes him, let's say it's a 44 bucks. And he laid his hands on him and he took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. And so the guy who has his hands around his throat does the same thing that the man who had been forgiven a 52 million. He fell down at his feet and he begged him, saying, if you'll just be patient with me, I know I'll be able to come up with the money and I'll I'll pay it all back, every penny. And he would not. But he went and he threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, the word got back to the king. You know that guy that you let go that owed you 52 million? Well, on his way home, he found a guy that owed him 44 bucks. And he grabbed him by the throat. The guy got on his knees and begged, just be patient with me, I'll pay you back. But he wouldn't forgive him. He threw him, uh, he was, uh, threw him into uh, prison until the debt was paid. And now the word gets back to the king. So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, so he calls this guy back, and he said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should not you also had have compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master became angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. Now remember, this is a debt he can't pay. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from your heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. I have used this text, I can't tell you how many times over the years, um, people come in with, um, um, you know, being human and getting in arguments with one another. And um, the old saying, it takes two to tango, you know what that means? It takes two to tango. <laughs> usually, if somebody calls you up and says, you'll never guess what happened to me and who did this to me, I usually uh, say, is there any way I could get you both together? Because what I found out, there's usually two sides to each story, and when you put it together, it's a lot different than one person just telling his side of a story. And as I'm working through it, I find out that it's a matter of um, um, maybe one being more wrong, sometimes 60-40, sometimes 70-30. And I basically get around to the point where have you guys sat down and said you were sorry to each other? Or the one that was at fault, have they said they were sorry? Yes, but they'll probably just do it again. And then I take them through this story here. If the person is wanting reconciliation 
And those some of the hardest words to say, you know, I was wrong, I'm sorry, are some of the hardest words to get out of your mouth when you're wrong. And yet, this parable here, um, and I'll say this several times this morning, the one who's unwilling to forgive, I say, do you realize that you've been forgiven a debt that you can never repay? You see, you're the one that's unforgiving right now, and you've been forgiving something that you could never in a million years have forgiven. And that is Jesus Christ died for you and forgave you a debt because you've sinned at least once, and he's forgiven that and wiped the slate clean. How dare you hold that over anybody else's head if they're in the same position, and it was one of repentance, just... I'm sorry, I'll do the best I can. I'll, I'll work on it to pay you back. He, his heart was one of repentance. He wanted to, to do what was right. And a good understanding of, of this teaching right here puts the person who will not forgive in a position that he has to, and if he doesn't, it goes on to say that the Lord is not going to forgive him. So let's turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. This man should have had the same compassion that was shown to him. Verse 36, the consequences of this man of unforgiveness from the heart, Jesus says in verse 36. I'll go back and reread it. So may your heavenly Father will do so to each one of you from his heart, does not forgive his brother. Not just a verbal, okay, I'm, I'm going to let it go. No, from your heart, there's, it's a done deal. Now in Ephesians chapter 4, picking it up in verse 30, the consequences of unforgiveness from the heart. In verse 30 it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of salvation, redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath and anger and clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted. Forgive one another, just as God in Christ also forgave you. This sums up that story. God has forgiven you. And as a result, we have to, if a person is repentive, we have to forgive that person um, actually from our heart. If you just uh, go a couple pages more to the next book, past Ephesians, past Philippians, into Colossians, go to Colossians chapter 3, Uh, Colossians 3, picking it up in verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness and long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against you, Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all things, 
Put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts so that you will be called in one body. And then it says, be thankful. Well, here's a question I'll rise. How do we do this? How do we maintain this mindset? Question, didn't the Lord say, let this mind be in you, which was in me? Good place for an amen. (laughs) Whose mind? Jesus' mind. Let Jesus' mind think like Jesus. And, you know, they said the wristbands. What would Jesus do? And we have to bring every thought under captivity. We're not to grieve the Holy Spirit, but we're to do what the Lord would have done in that given situation. How do you do that? How do we take on the mind of Christ? Gang, there's only one way. And that's in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In all wisdom, teaching. That's what we're having a Bible study on this morning. Very practical. What's the biblical response to forgiveness? When to do it, when not to. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. When the freedom comes of the weight of sin being lifted off, do you remember that day when that happened to you? And then to not allow that to be freely given to somebody and not forgive them, you're grieving the Holy Spirit because of what God has given for you. If you forgive, then the peace of God, as we read here, will reign in your hearts. However, if you don't forgive, um, back in Ephesians verse um, 31, then what's going to happen is it says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Instead of having the peace that passes understanding, you can become angry, angry, Um, You can become bitter, and you can begin to speak evil. Um, Basically, Jesus said in the story, you'll be tormented. I'm going to turn you over to the tormentors uh, because you became bitter. You have wrath now and anger instead of this freedom that's um, inside of you. And you're the one that's going to be rolling around on your pillow at night. And um, the other person that may not even know that you got a problem with him, he's sound asleep. But you're the one who's up and you have no peace in your heart because you're holding something in your heart. All right, number two, how should we go about forgiving? For that, we need to turn back to Matthew chapter 18. This one is misunderstood and misapplied many times. Matthew eighteen fifteen through 17. It says, Moreover, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take with him one or two more, and by the mouth of two or three witnesses, Every word may be established. Okay, remember I've said I'm going to point out every time there's a prophecy? This is a prophecy. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 17. And the Lord here is applying it 
in this um, story about forgiveness. Um, if he won't hear you, then the Bible says, let something be established in the witness of one or two. Remember what I said earlier? If one person comes up and tells you his side of the story, uh, it's better to have two or three around and make sure you get all your information down. And then it says in verse 17, if he refuses to hear them, then tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to him as a heathen and a tax collector. Now, this is supposed to be a brother in the Lord. He sinned against a brother. The first thing we're told is go um, with him one-on-one. He blows you off. So you take a couple more friends and you confront him, and they blow him off. Then it becomes an issue for the entire church and um, if there's still, if he still refuses, then it says, treat him as an unbeliever. In the days in which we live, what you don't do, if somebody has sinned against you, you don't go on Facebook, okay, and say, do you know what so-and-so did to me? And all of a sudden, you've just sent your complaint all the way around the world, and it's being picked up by who knows And that's the technology today. The fact is, some people um, uh, are very (laughs) belligerent, stubborn, vindictive. And for some people, I think it's simply impossible for them to repent because of pride. You know, the, the, the biggest sin and the worst sin, according to scriptures, is pride. And that's the fall of Lucifer. You think Satan is going to ever repent for what he did? No. How do I know? Read the end of the book. The Bible says that hell was created for the devil and his angels. Only unrepentive people and angels end up in hell. But they will end up in hell. And it's nothing more than your stinking... Boy, that's pretty descriptive. I usually don't get that descriptive on Sunday morning. Your stake in pride. And to humble your heart is a necessity for salvation. And admit what the scripture tells us about us is true. My heart is deceitfully wicked above all things who can know it. Good place for an amen. We don't want to say that because we like to think there's something good in there somewhere. No, there's none good, no, not one. The Lord used illustration. You think those guys up in the Galilee that Pilate killed, do you think they were worse than other sinners? No. If you're hearing this, please understand it. I'm not better than you, and you're not better than me. We're both sinners saved by grace. Another good place for an amen. The playing field is flat when it comes to this world. You're either a saved sinner or you're a lost sinner, and there's no in-betweens. And you say, well, I don't believe that. Well, may not now, but my Bible says someday every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, whether you believe it or not. And you'll have your day in court, all your justification, all your rationale that you have. And that's when the books were open and the great white throne judgment for those people who died in their sins. And it says they were judged according to their works. Every thought, every word, every deed, stuff that you're sure nobody knows anything about, it's all written down. 
And you're going to stand guilty as charged. And you're a fool, a religious fool in some cases, to play Russian roulette with something that's so valuable as a human soul. As we read on Wednesday night, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? What does it profit a man if he gains a whole world? But he loses his own soul. Jesus is the only one, my friends, who ever said that sin is the issue. He rebuked Peter last week when Jesus said, well, I'm going to the cross and die and rise again in three days. And Peter took him aside and rebuked him. He says, get behind me, Satan. You think you're not concerned for the things of God, which is sending me to the cross so mankind can be saved. You're only mindful of the things of men. And so how should this be done? Well, we're told here in Matthew 18, it instructs us how to confront a person who has sinned against you. You are to go to him. This verse is speaking of sin committed by a believer. The obligation is upon the one who has been injured to approach his brother who has offended him and not vice versa. There are some people who like to smooth things over and cover it up and um, make no big deal over it. Let's pretend it's not there. This happened to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5. There was a guy that was sleeping around. Everybody knew about it, but nobody was saying anything about it. It wasn't being confronted. They were kind of smoothing it over. Well, Paul wasn't there, but he writes him a letter. And he says, even though I'm not there, this is what you do. You confront it. And you, you take the guy out who's not repentive. Evidently, it was an ongoing affair. And he says, you kick him out of the church and you pray for the destruction of his flesh so that his soul could be saved in the day of judgment. He was deceived thinking that this was fine. And um, Paul says the most loving thing you can do is boot him out and um, pray that the devil will tear him apart, bring him to the end of himself, so that when he does stand before God, he'll repent and his soul will be saved. Well, here's the good news. When you read, uh, that was in 1 Corinthians 5. When you read 2 Corinthians 5, the guy's name comes up again. And Paul says, you know, I didn't like doing that. I didn't like confronting it. I didn't like to, to kick the guy out. didn't like to do any of that. But I'm glad I did, and here's why. He repented. And he says, now, church, don't you ever treat him as a second-class Christian. Remember, it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, and, some, and such were some of you. You know, my friend, he's not my friend, but I, I respect him as a musician, Bruce Coburn. Everybody loves to see justice served on somebody else. And a great line. Everybody likes to see justice done on somebody else. <laughs> great line. So the how-tos of this um, is, is not to gloss over it, to confront it, and make it an issue, which brings us to our third one today and what's crept into the church And it gives me an opportunity um, to expose, at this point, false doctrine, wrong understandings about forgiveness. And it has more than one title. And the question that the third point is, uh, how does one 
deal with universalism and biblical forgiveness. For those of you who are hearing the terminologies for the first time, I'm going to read about universalism, Christian universalism, Unitarian universalism, purgatorial universalism, and annihilationism. And they're all slightly different in some aspects. So bear with me uh, for those of you who um, are hearing this term terminology for the first time. Universalism is a belief that all people will spend eternity in heaven with God, whether they believe in him or not. Many churches teach this by default by either not teaching that hell exists or is eternal, or they teach that works are the gateway to heaven, that everyone is basically good, and how could a loving God send people to hell? This means that a majority of unsaved people really are universalists at heart. Then there's Christian universalism. It's a school of Christian theology focused around the doctrine of universal reconciliation. The view that all human beings will ultimately be saved and restored to a right relationship with God upon death, regardless of what they believe in life. Now, the author, William Paul Young, uh, believes this the author of The Shack. Then there's Unitarian Universalism. Uh, It historically grew out of Christian universalism, but is not a Christian denomination, but very liberal and spiritually powerless. It formed from a 1961 merger of two historical Christian denominations, the Universalist Church of America and the American Unitarian Association, both based in the United States. And then there's purgatorial universalism which has its roots in Roman Catholicism, was the belief of some of the earth, was some, uh, a belief of some of the early church fathers, such as Origen. It asserts that the unsaved will undergo a kind of hell, but that hell is um, um, neither everlasting, uh, neither is there eternal punishment involved. According to key scriptures, and that after purification or after a period of time of being in purgatory uh, or conversion, they will eventually, after they spent their allotted time in purgatory, enter heaven. This is a default position of, of Catholicism. And the last one is called annihilationism, and a lot of people hold to this one. It simply teaches that after a short time of punishment, The sinner's soul is destroyed completely, neutralizing the fear of eternal judgment and making evangelism unnecessary and actually neutralizing the power of the gospel and the resurrection. Um, This book right here I highly recommend. We had James B. DeYoung here at our conference last year. We have this in our bookstore. It's called Exposing Universalism. And in In order to talk to people about it, you really have to have a good grip of what they believe and who believes. It's extremely popular um, in in many of of the churches today. And let me tell you, it's going to cost you your friends. I have lost friends over the very subject that I'm talking about right now. I don't know, maybe it was 10 years ago. 
Um, I had uh, Barry McGuire doing the music for one of our pastor's conferences here. Um, I apologize to some of your younger people. I was uh, Barry's uh, an older man now. <laughs> uh, I know Barry. I was at his 75th. Uh, in 1975, I was at his 40th birthday party. So you guys can go ahead and do the math and figure out just about where he's at right now. But uh, he was originally on uh, Broadway with Lynn Kellogg and Hare. He was with the New Christie Minstrels. Uh, his famous song, of course, is Eve of Destruction. And um, I had invited him uh, to come and do music for our pastor's conference. He said, I'd love to. And boy, I was looking forward to it. I really, I saw Barry for the first time in Explo 72 when he first got saved. He'd get up and sing a song about Jesus and then he'd cry like a little baby. And, um, and then I worked with him in 75 with the second chapter of Acts in Colorado as they were doing concerts. Um, I still remember this day walking out of a store and him looking up and going, you know, it could be today. Fond memories. And then I get a letter from Warren. He says, well, I hear you got Barry McGuire coming to your conference. And I go, you betcha, we're looking forward to it. He says, well, you know he's a universalist, don't you? And I says, no, he's not. And he says, yes, he is. He says, no, he's not. He says, yes, he is. And this went on for about 10 minutes. I know this guy's heart. He loves Jesus. And, and um, he says, why don't you call him up and ask him? So I did. I called him up and I said, Barry, I don't want to put you on the spot, but. Um, can I ask you a simple question? Are you a universalist? And he said, what's that? I said, you don't even know what it means? <laughs> he says, no. I said, Barry, a universalist is someone who believes that everybody is going to go to heaven. He says, well, of course I believe that. Every day for the next month, we either talked on the phone or back and forth. I did everything I could to explain to him. And finally, he just said to me, Dwight, here's why you don't get it. You don't have any kids. If you had a child, then you would understand why a loving God would never send anybody to hell. You know the problem with that? It's a heart. He's a musician. And I'm not saying that in a derogatory way. And I, I said, Barry, this is not a gray issue. This is about as black and white as you can get. You're letting your heart getting in the way of what God's word clearly teaches about this issue. And he finally just said to me, Dwight, all I want to do is sing about Jesus. Just let me come and sing about Jesus. And I said, I can't. I said, because I know now what you believe. I would, I would be almost endorsing the doctrine of universalism he had a Q&A at the Cup of Joy just a couple of years ago, and somebody asked him straight out, and he explained for 10 minutes why he was a universalist. And it broke my heart because um, I personally love Barry McGuire, and it breaks my heart uh, where I've, we finally did research on where this all came from, only to find out that he was in a, in a band with Brian McLaren in Canada. Brian McLaren, Rob Bell, Doug Paget, Paul Young influenced him in this. And if you're not familiar with Rob Bell, he wrote the book Love Wins. 
Brian McLaren, big universalist, Doug Paget, and of course, the one that's become famous now is um, Paul Young. Paul Young and James B. D. Young used to be best friends. They used to go camping together. I used to have a Christian think tank together until the author of the, of the, of the shack, Will, uh, William Paul Young, brought in a thesis explaining that he's now a universalist. They had to do two rewrites of the shack to try to get as much of the universal, universalism out of it for the sake of it selling more books. Well, it sold billions of books. And now they're, they're making a movie of it um, that's out there to this day. In recent, um, I had to tell him, Barry, you can't come. And he says, why? I said, because the name of our conference is Staying the Course. <laughs> Staying the Course. Well, we just took a big left turn if, the, if, if that would have happened. I lost a friend. I want you to know, you're gonna, if you take a stand and don't compromise, you're going to lose friends. That's just the way it's going to be. But my Bible says it's better to obey God than to obey man. And don't let your heart get in the way. The most loving thing that Paul could have did to that guy that was sleeping around in the church of Corinth was kick him out. That's the most loving thing he could have done. Rather than allow him to continue in his sin and stand before God in judgment. As um, in the back of, of his book right here, James B. Young, and I'm just quoting him, he says, in recent decades, universal Reconciliation has shaped, sharpened its attack on evangelical faith by their fiction and nonfiction and by the film The Shack. Universalists such as Paul Young, Brian McLaren, Brian McLaren, Rob Bell, and others are propagating the idea that the love of God trumps all other attributes of God, including his holiness and justice. From this starting point, universal Universalists believe that all people are born as children of God, that all are going to heaven, that all must embrace God's love. Those who reject God in this life will repent after death and escape hell. Even the devil and his angels will repent uh, from hell and go to heaven. Universalism is an old idea. Christians have confronted universalism since the third century and refuted it as heresy. Heresy because universal reconciliation believes that faith in Jesus is unnecessary. Thus, the death of Jesus Christ as an atonement for sins becomes unnecessary. Well, my response to that from God's word, if we're looking at a biblical view on forgiveness, Hebrews 9.27, it's been appointed unto man once to die. And then the judgment. Luke 13. I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Revelation 20.15. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And these will go into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. As I close this up this morning, I want you to turn, if you would please, to... 1 John chapter 1, and, and end it hopefully with some good news. Proverbs 24, 16, it says, A righteous man 
falls seven times. And um, I think it was David Hawking was the one that said it at the last pastor's conference. He quoted this verse. And he basically said, look, on your best day, (laughs) on your best day, you're going to blow it seven times. That's on your best day. And we need to be continually cleansed and washed. So if you're in 1 John 1, verse 9, it's an ongoing process of repenting. It's not just a a one-time thing, yes, to accept Jesus, uh, but then we sin on a daily basis. We read, if we confess our sins, again, the necessity of acknowledging, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But catch the next verse. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. You see, there's no excuses. So with the ongoing process of the Christian life, it's interesting to me that Paul, when he was old, said that he was the chiefest of sinners. And every one of us here will say, no, I think I am. (laughs) And the older we get, the more we realize just how fall short. We, We fall of God's standard. Well, here's the good news. If you walk in um, repentance, we're told to pray without ceasing. A lot of times that means, Lord, I, I, I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. Lord, I shouldn't have thought that. It's wrong. I'm sorry. And it's an ongoing, but encouraging part is the Lord is willing. He's a compassionate father just waiting for us that can't pay back a debt. There's nothing I can do. Um, I'm the 52,400,000. There's no way that I can pay back that debt unless I have a compassionate king who's willing to wipe the slate clean. But if I do that, now I'm obligated to anybody who has sinned against me and they want to make things right, but I say, forget about it. You're just going to do it again. No, I do not have that option. Father, forgive us our trespasses as what? We forgive those who trespass against us. But I do have a closing question. Um, And and this is meant um, for somebody here, somebody watching online. With a group this size, there's always one. And the closing question is, is there anyone here who are holding unforgiveness from? They want to make it right but you refuse to do it. I want you to remember this. You've been forgiven a debt you can't repay. You and I are the ones who have been forgiven the 52 million. If you don't, you'll be the one who's going to be tormented because you know the truth. If you have, just take a moment, don't have to close your eyes, but ask the Lord, Is that me? Is there somebody that I'm holding it over their head? And if that's the case, know that you're the one that's going to be tormented. Instead, if you do, I'll close with this verse, Colossians 3, verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, put on tender mercies, show kindness, be meek, bear with one another, 
Granted, some people are easier to bear than others. Good place for an amen. It's true. (laughs) Some people are easy to bear. Some people are unbearable. But bear with them, with love, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Jesus forgave you, so you also must do. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Father, you taught us in the Lord's Prayer. Lord, forgive us our trespasses as we sin every day, either in thought, word, and deed. And we read in John that if we do, that you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. Thank you for the truth that your mercies are new every single morning. So, Lord, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And that person, whoever it might be that has this person in their heart and it's been there for a long time, Lord, set that person free this morning and let that person forgive from the heart and let it be done and let it be over with. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.